Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and this is Mark Anthony Rossi with Strength to Be Human. We have another wonderful interview segment. As you already know, these things are not always the easiest to get scheduled, although, uh, ironically, this one was, and, and, and thank God for that. We have uh, Nicole Bird here. Okay, uh, She uh, has a degree in creative writing. Um, she uh, done some screenwriting and film production works and even directs some of her own short films. And... I, I, I found it funny uh, that she was uh, trying to gain some baking skills uh, during the pandemic because I cannot believe how many people told me that they worked on their food skills during the pandemic. So I, it's almost fun to read that because even I did, and I, and I cook a lot, actually. Nicole, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. When I first saw the first poem you did, and I don't care if it's biased or not, I get email all the time on the show, so... You can hate me. That's fine. <laughs> but I said, oh, my God, here goes a great a poem that has all kinds of wonderful Italian flashes to it, but it's not boring. It's not cliche. It has a lot of heart. I'm guessing that you're not even Italian. And I'm like, why can't more people write like this? So I was totally fascinated. I was so happy. I didn't even care that you sent me six poems and maybe all five of them stink. And that was the only one that was great because I was just excited with that one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was um, that poem was inspired by it was it was my last night. I was moving out of uh, Los Angeles to Florida, and then it was it was um, I was having dinner with this old friend of mine, and then we always had this very professional relationship. But then the fact that I was leaving, um, he was like, "Well, I'll just I'll take you out to dinner," and then we just like the poem says, we ate like Romans. We just we ate everything in front of us. We drank wine, meat that was still sizzling in the center and these rich mashed potatoes like with butter and that it's mostly butter, probably like 30% potato. And, and it was just a very decadent night that was really fitting for a last night in a city of decadence like Los Angeles. <laughs> well, it's so funny that you mentioned the first line because now I did it catch me off guard right away and I loved it. And it's the kind of love that a writer says to himself, God, I wish I wrote that. And I didn't really see her writing that because I wish I had that line. That was great. But also I had this funny experience where uh, with Philadelphia Stories that, that published one of my works that uh, they, they actually um, uh, publicized it on Instagram and they used the first line of the fiction piece. And I thought that was so amusing because I went through so many drafts of that, that in the end, that was the only thing left from the original piece was the first line. So I kept wow. saying to myself, maybe first lines do make something because I didn't really think about that line being that fabulous, the one I did. I mean, it was cool, but I didn't think it was that fabulous. Where I thought yours, I'm like, that is so Italian. I wish I owned it. <laughs> well, isn't that the interesting thing about first lines, though, is that first lines, they they set the tone, they remain almost indelible in the, in the reader's mind. And, 
And I think a lot about first lines when I'm writing anything, whether it's fiction or or poetry. I mean, I also write screenplays, but um, screenplays are more a compendium of images. But prose and, and poetry is there. Every word matters. Every word is working, especially those first words, because it's like it's like that first impression that you have when you open a door into a room or if you go into a club or a bar or a stadium, anything like those first steps are what stay with us. And, and I try and really think about those first lines, like, is every word working? Is every word essential? And, um, and I, I guess like, I don't know, I think just excess and decadence always makes me think of, of Romans, that it's just this, this uh, environment where anything can happen and anything is possible. And, the lighting is dim, but warm, and there's laughter and, you know, just this like bacchanal, basically. So that's that really what I wanted. That's what I wanted to accomplish with that opening line. Yeah, oh, I think it's really important because I preach about it in poetry uh, that the open line is extremely important because of how few words you have left in an actual poem. You can't afford to you mess up where with a fiction piece. I, I didn't think about the first line. I thought about the first paragraph. I felt if I got that to where I wanted it would go to where I wanted to go in the end, and and it and it did, and so that's all I was I was thinking about. But it's also funny too because Italian people in general they tend to make a dinner almost like a theater event. It's it's festival. It, people are allowed, and a lot of things are happening. It's not like a you know I, I've been to some people's dinners before where it's it, it's almost like a funeral. I'm like really we're supposed to be this quiet when we're eating. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My family is from Puerto Rico. So I grew up with food being flavorful and there's usually music playing and you can smell the food all throughout the house. And it's always warm. And there's there's like the aroma of spice in the air. And for, for in the Puerto Rican culture, it's food is very important. Food is everything. You know, it's it's life. And that's why, like, I don't do diets very well. Diets make me depressed. You know, no, I don't I don't do that. I would rather I'd rather just enjoy food and enjoy my life. And uh, then I will I will walk around the neighborhood or something. I agree. <laughs> Remember, I'm from New Jersey, so I have a lot yeah. of a lot of experience with Puerto Ricans. In fact, I went to school with them, hung out with them, dated them. I always said that next to Italian <laughs> women, Puerto Rican women are the most interesting because they don't really care about other things you 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 mentioned they they want to they want to be free they want to be able to eat they want to be able to to love life and, and and learn things and i always found them very interesting that way also i always thought that in many instances uh they had a lot of the same family values as italians so i always found that the, the two groups got along very well oh my gosh yes absolutely just family values all the way that it and and also too it's actually kind of interesting it's um very much like a matriarchal culture, you know, it's like very much like, what does the mother think? What does she, what would she like to do? What does, what does the eldest female member of this family wish to do? How is she doing? You know, where is she? Is someone taking care of her? It's just, it's very much about family. You nailed it. Yeah, it is. I, I often laugh sometimes with some of my more modern type friends who are not Italian and they tell me all this feminist stuff. I'm like, really? How do you apply that to to Italians and Puerto Ricans. Have you been in any of those families before? Men don't men don't have a lot of say on anything. So I don't know what you're talking about. We've been really practicing feminism for about 10,000 years already, okay? <laughs> yeah, it's very much like valuing 
valuing a woman's voice. Um, there's a lot of that. Of course, there's the pushback as always, because there's also the machismo that matches it. But, you know, I mean, it's just different cultures. That's how it is. They're all on different rhythms. They all have their own melodies. And that's that's also interesting to to explore in writing. That's the beautiful thing, I think, about looking at a writer and where they come from what is their what is their culture of origin you know were they and also to how if they're raised in america but they are the children of immigrants it's how does that translate into their writing because you see almost that double consciousness in their writing you see the tendrils of each culture moving through it it's it's very interesting well i am so glad that you brought a lot of that to your to your writing and of course to your philosophy i mentioned before that i'd have been happy just with that one poem but you gave me six, and I was happy with all of them. In fact, I was extremely, <laughs> extremely excited that here are six poems that oftentimes when people give me a group of poems uh, for the journal aerial chart, they seem to be related, almost like, you know, three related, one acts. But in your particular case, they were so far apart, and they, I, don't, I don't know if they were necessarily written at different times in your life, but they were not the same at all. They could stand alone and you don't have to worry about reading the other one. So I really thought that was exciting, too, because it's almost like I'm getting six stories here from my journal instead of just one. Yeah, thank you so much for publishing all of them. I mean, I, this is it's uh, it's interesting because I started my journey into poetry with the quarantine. The quarantine really started it. And because before that, um, I had been working in film production and film production, it's 12 to 14 hour days. It is go, 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 work, work, work to the point that I was finding it difficult to write. I would stay up late at nights writing because I was, I was working on a book at that time of um, fiction, a fantasy, a YA fantasy. And, um, but I found myself kind of not writing just simply because I was too exhausted at the end of the night. And it was also, this was at the time, this was the previous world, the old world where we would go into offices and we were there eight to 10 hours a day. And then I lived very far away from where I worked. So my commute was an hour each way. So I, I didn't really have much time to write and the quarantine happened. And while it had its tragedies, I don't know anyone that hasn't been touched by COVID. I um my own aunt, she passed away from COVID oh, and, well, I'm but, sorry. but the, Oh no, it's okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, but the quarantine really opened up the door to so many things. Like I think, I think as people, we're, I'm seeing two different camps that there are people who want to go back to the way things were. And then there are people who want to adapt to this new world, whatever that looks like, that's completely unprecedented. And so I found myself exploring all of those ideas and all of those philosophies about like, how do I look at life now? I was exploring it through poetry and I started with prose poetry because that was what I was used to. I was writing prose and I've always loved prose poetry. Um, like Denise Duhamel, she, she's just this amazing feminist prose poet. And, um, I just was gravitating towards it because I find that poetry, you are able to paint with words and you're able to create and formulate a melody and a rhythm with the words, but and in that same way, capture a moment in existence that you don't know how else to explore it. And it's just almost a snapshot, but one that you really can't look away from. And it's, it was always very interesting to me. And I just never, 
I had never thought of myself as a poet. It's very interesting as writers that we can, <laughs> we can place ourselves into our own boxes, but then it is when we just start doing it, we start doing the work that we become more of that. So um, the quarantine started my journey into poetry. And then these six poems really were when I was also starting to work with stanza breaks and really look at punctuation uh, that what does each punctuation mark do? You know, it's a, a colon is going to do something other than a semicolon, which is going to do something other than a dash, which is going to do something other than a comma. And they're all these, it's like, they're like measures. They're like note measures and, and even notes on a piano. So these six poems really were a culmination of the last few months of work and just where my brain was that, you know, the last night was this kind of image that will never made, you know, hasn't left my mind for years. I, I moved away from Los Angeles uh, in the beginning of 2019. So it's been two years now and, and it still kind of haunts me. I, you know, I don't know. That's my stuff to work out. Writers, we have a lot of stuff to work out internally. <laughs> we, you know? we, no... we do. I, if you recall, you and I were just chatting the other night and, I had mentioned to you that I wrote a series of fiction pieces all based on my experiences during the Cold War in West Germany, all about German things that happened. And and I didn't want to use the word haunting, but it was used so much in the writing that I had to start accepting that, yeah, maybe it's a type of a haunting and it's a good thing to get out and, and, and maybe be able to, if not move past, at least live with a little bit better. So, yeah, there are things we can work out or we have to work out still. And that's not bad because if we could do it in a healthy fashion and even in a creative fashion, then why not? I mean, yeah, isn't that the truth? Like that sounds – yes, I completely agree that it's – as long as you're not like taking your frustration out in a maladaptive way or a toxic way, then then why not work it out in writing? Which I don't know any writer who's not working any – like something out in their writing that they're just – you know, you almost have to process it and process it and process it until it's done. It's it's like the process of revision. You just you need to keep writing and keep reworking it and reworking it. And and um, also to the, the poems that I submitted to you were just, you know, disparate experiences that I had in the last few months, like like on lineage, which is about uh, my maternal grandmother, who I will I may never meet, but, you know, hope you know, life has a funny inevitability about it. So I probably will. I don't know if you read the um, comments in there, but people were reacted to that poem in, in a really deep fashion. You, you know, what was interesting was that um, I was reading the comments and it's so funny how we react to people talking about family secrets. And I guess I've spent so much of my life being quite secretive and not, not being open and honest with with things like that that I think it was it was the pandemic it was the quarantine that I was like you know what who knows what's going to happen tomorrow I might as well just write this poem about about my maternal grandmother whom I've never met and is a mystery but is she a mystery in an in an impactful way or is she just a mystery like everybody is you know well one of the things I try to impart to people on the show or even in the, in the journal is that it's a falsehood to believe that there's nothing new left to write. That's just one of those giving up things. I tell people, if you want to keep believing that, then maybe you should just stop writing then because you're going to destroy yourself with that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that your job is to make things. 
that we've heard about before new. And to me, it's new for somebody to actually write something that, and I'm not trying to offend anybody here, including you, where the grandmother might not be the, the nicest person in the world. And, and you have to admit that in, in order to be able to to accept a certain truths about, uh, about a family, or at least a part of a family, where too many people disguise that. Uh, you didn't. And, and I thought that not only was it a brave thing, but it's where we should try to go in our writing more often. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you know, I have the same philosophy. I think, you know, maybe there are no new stories, but there are always new points of view. I think there are so many stories that haven't been told. So many that, you know, if you think about what is considered canon and and what are considered stories that people study over and over again, children study over and over again in high school, middle school, elementary school, all that. But that is only reinforcing the same point of view. There have to be new ones. There have to be, especially now with the world, the way it's changing. And now is the time for new points of views and therefore new stories. So I completely agree with you. I think that is a way to destroy yourself. It's a way to, to give up before you've even started. Because I get a lot of grandmother poems. That's what I have to call them, okay? And <laughs> and they literally fall into like four or five different cliche categories where I literally have to reject them with my memory about the last five I rejected along the same lines. Okay, grandma's cranky. Okay, uh, grandma's really cool. Okay, uh, grandma's uh, husband died in World War Two. I mean, it's just like I get to a point where I wonder if even any of this stuff is true. If this is the stuff people regurgitate because it's easier rather than accept that either grandmother is not interesting or maybe grandma is actually really mean, bigoted, and hateful. <laughs> and they just don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's funny because I've never, I've never known my maternal grandmother, so it was maybe even easier to write about her as like this phantom. You know, I mean, I also, um, I make, horror movies that's what I do as a filmmaker that's the genre that I work within so for me she was always kind of like the boogeyman like who is this person who had exhibited such violence such unbridled violence towards her own blood and um and I also see that you know I just I see I'm also very interested in inherited trauma and how family lineage just like abuse kind of gets passed down and what is what are the results of that? And also too, like uh, my mother having experienced this sort of trauma, she was the breaker of that violence. And then that to me was always the greatest lesson growing up that it's like someone, you know, who's abusive, they're making a choice because yes, you can have trauma and yes, you can be a product of where you came from, but you do have the choice of how you keep stepping forward, you know, how, how you move forward from that. And I always found that very interesting, kind of that, inherited trauma and now what happens what happens to it i guess that's why i titled it on lineage because that is my lineage you know so so what does it mean and is it just something random are we just like are we just brambles of rust is that is that what we are is that who she is in i mean and and especially in the fact that she's not really even very lucid um at all so what does it mean? Again, writers working stuff out <laughs> in their writing. Well, I, I love the line, too. I, I really do. So it, it was another wonderful piece of, of that particular poem. It's not just the, um, the candor. That's probably the nicest way to put it, uh, of, of the poem itself, because <laughs> you just don't see so many of that. You really don't. I, I, used, to, I used to laugh with um, 
a friend of mine who's a, a, a really a really spiritual person. I'm I'm somebody of faith, but I don't I don't make a a big flash of it. But uh, this person did, and and that's fine. But I used to always say, listen, I, I find it curious that um, folks want to confront evil, but they have like ninety seven thousand secrets themselves. So how do you confront a demon that knows about seven of your secrets and you're judging this demon? What are you going to do when, when they, they bring all this stuff out in the open, either to you or to somebody else? How do you combat that? How do you stay still? How do you, how do you stay focused? How do you even stay relevant or, or not feeling hypocritical? It's one of the problems that I think we have in writing and even in, in life in general with our relationships. Too many secrets, no matter how small they might be, they, they tend to be more damaging than we realize. Oh, man. We're only as sick as our secrets. That's the thing. <laughs> that's probably true. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, we're only as sick as our secrets. And that's, I mean, I, I, I'm I kind of someone that has too much candor, I think. <laughs> I can't really, it's... Um, I'm from New Jersey, know, maybe... so that's, to me, it's very <laughs> New Jersey, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, I... I... I don't like, um, I don't like lies. I don't, I don't like lying. And I find myself, I feel stronger when I'm just honest and it's just better to be honest. That way you don't, you don't have to, you only have to remember one version of it. You only have to remember the truth when you tell somebody. So I, and I think if you are honest with yourself, if you have kind of self-actualized in that sense that, that you have accepted yourself as to who you are and you're not trying to put on any airs with people you're not leading with any kind of fallacies or facades then your writing gets better your writing is honest people it's so funny like people have more instincts and people are more psychic than they give themselves credit for um it's like they can tell when they're around a bs artist you know they can just tell and they can't tell you how they know they just know and I think that that's the same phenomenon that's at play with writing. People know when it's phony. They just know. It's the reason why I have to reject a, a certain portion of the writing. Even though the writing is, is solid technically, it just doesn't have anything else. Because, first of all, I've seen it or heard it before, which is never a good thing. And then, second mm -hmm. of all, it, it, it just seems to be dishonest in a fashion sometimes i could put my finger on it and other times it's just collectively i after i read it, i'm like it doesn't ring true and and, and then literally you have to tell somebody this it's just is not reaching me and as the editor if it's not going to reach me um don't believe it's going to reach other people because if i'm feeling it's phony you know somebody's going to feel the same way and, and again it, it, you, you kind of like label your, your journal or maybe even your own efforts that way because when you're releasing something like that out there it's what you're saying this is okay well if I don't say it's okay then it's going to get rejected so I have a different criteria than a lot of editors out there who just want to publish people based on their on their academic credits or what college they went to or who they knew or you know blah 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 and to me I don't really find that useful for, for literary yeah, I'm. I am grateful for that. I'm. I'm grateful that there is a place like Aerial Chart for, for authentic writing for those voices. Um, because there's a lot. There's a lot of nepotism. There's a lot of that oligarchical, you know, oligarchy structure in the literary world. That it's well, this person knows this person, and and they went to this school, and then those doors are open to them as you know, whereas they're not open to other people. And so I think anywhere where there's an even playing field 
is so advantageous. Yeah, I, I wish I could point you to every direction where those are at, but uh, sometimes you won't know. You won't know until you arrived and, and they have communicating with you about things. Because I've known places that have had a rough reputation and they wanted to publish it, and then I find out that the editor there is simply somebody that wasn't there before. So now they have another viewpoint on things. Now suddenly they feel you're okay where the other two before them might have think you stunk. So yeah. those things happen. So it sometimes you can't like put down the institution from your past experience. You have to give it another shot. But you know you you're always going to be worried. Well, and it's also so subjective. It's so subjective. I mean, like I I submitted a poem to another journal uh, a, a couple of months ago, and they wrote me back, which I'm very grateful for when I, you know, when I get that specific feedback or, or a note back, that's not like a form rejection. It's like, Oh, okay, cool. This is, this is also a success, even though it doesn't look like it. And, um, and they wrote me back and they said, well, you know, you were very close, uh, but there was a sentence fragment in this one part and, and I didn't like it. So, I mean, and, and it's very subjective and that's, they're fair, they're valid in their point of view because that, you know, it's theirs. That's how it is with art, especially like you just, you have to hope that somebody sees the same images that you're trying to build on the page. Like they have to see it in their mind's eye as well, because if not, you know, it's just not going to, it's not going to ring for them. It's not going to go. And and it's a tough thing to hear because uh, as an editor, uh, we all have a different viewpoint on things. My viewpoint on that particular issue was if I felt the poem was solid and it had a little bit of an issue, you know, you could communicate to the person to see if they're willing to spend the time to make an alteration and then revisit it. You don't have to outright reject it. But that's me. Other people might might feel differently. But I don't really understand that type of rejection versus saying, listen, uh, this is put together well, but I don't know where the heck it's going. So I, I'm just not going to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. You know, it's it's it must be a very um, interesting position and one and one that is full of kind of surprises as an editor because you see so much work. I mean, it it must. How what is that like? I've I've heard of this sort of thing that you're mentioning before. So it's not like I haven't heard it before over the years of me yeah. being an editor of other magazines before I created my my own finally about about six years ago. But I, I, to, I, I don't know, without, without trying to sound too street on the show, and it happens though, it, it's, it's penny any to me because I don't understand how the poem hinges on that. And you're telling me if you feel it's that solid except for that, then why would it not be as good as some of the other things you have? What, they they got a word correctly or a punctuation right or something? You, you, you suddenly don't physically have the room for this that you can't give it the, an extra moment? To me, it doesn't make any sense. By the time they mentioned to you, by spending the time to communicate you this, they could have really also offered the suggestion or even a, a ray of hope. Uh, being an editor has to be more than just being some some idiotic adjudicator. It has to be more than that. Hmm. That is interesting, especially with with literature. I mean, I I I wonder what what it would be like to select that work. It's you know what you hone in on. Is it is it voice? Is it imagery? Is it, you know, I mean, it's just so many things go into the alchemy of writing and the alchemy of creating a poem and hoping that you read something that it, it, it captures a moment so perfectly that it feels like you were there. 
you know, I think that was, that's what would be, I would, what I would be looking for anyway, that did you catch this moment in existence? There's a couple of valid viewpoints. And the one you just mentioned is one of them. Uh, I I don't know if you want to call it a more of a a cinematography (laughs) kind of version of, (laughs) of looking at it. Maybe that that could be it. I always look at it in, in a sort of a more, more harsher manner. Do I feel that the person is telling me something that normally they wouldn't, but art is allowing it to convey that. It's almost making them confess. It's almost making them be honest with themselves and therefore the audience. I like that the more than anything else in poetry because I, I feel these days it's easy to have a wonderful rumble of words that sound artistically great and still I, I haven't gotten anything other than, wow, that sounded cool. What the hell did it mean? So uh, sometimes I've, I'd like... I had one guy, and I actually nominated him for an award uh, for the best of the net for poetry for my magazine a couple months ago, and it was a it was a beautiful poem about a man that was completely disappointed in his father to the point that he felt his father was just somebody that would throw him in a can uh, and and shoot him out because he didn't really care, but nevertheless he loved his father. It was an extremely sad poem, but it's not the kind of poem you would normally read. Because we make fathers to be heroes, we make fathers to be saints, and nothing wrong with that because sometimes they are, uh, but we don't get too many poems where the, where the father is just a disappointment. And it's not a disappointment of he locked me in the basement or he stabbed my mother or he shot the cop or something, it's just a disappointment as a father. And it was like, wow. And that's the kind of poem I, I, I like to see because that takes a lot of guts. And, and to me, in many ways, that's going to that's gonna reach people because there's going to be people out there they probably feel the same way sometimes. Well, I, I love that philosophy of um, with the platform of art, the writer is telling you something that they normally wouldn't because it's almost, it's almost like that question of like, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. You know, when maybe a poem should be like the real answer to how are you? And, um, and I, what I love about poetry too, is that you can, explore those difficult truths and what you're doing is you're doing it with a spoon spoonful of sugar you're doing it with beautiful words you're doing it with vivid imagery you're doing it with rhythm and with punctuation in a way that before the person even knows it they read something that was very uncomfortable and you should have to reckon with art the reader should have to reckon with things that are uncomfortable that's why art is is here that's why it's present it's even you know, I I have a belief that it started with cave painting and it started with hunting magic where early man would paint what they wanted their hunt to be. And it was aspirational. It was something they were dreams before we could even say the word dreams, before our vocal cords were developed to the point that we had language. And that is art, that's story. And it's all there, no matter the medium, it's there. And so if you're going to write a story, it should be something that is in your soul, that's clinging to the sides of you, and it needs to come out. And so there has to be some kind of truth there that maybe you're afraid to say, maybe someone is afraid to read, but at the very most, or at the very least, it should have you feel something, because we know truth when we read it. You know, we know art when we hear it, when we see it. And that's, that's always what I strive to do with poetry. I think because it's, it's funny as a writer, I have, I have written since I was a child, you know, I was like five years old and 
my mother, you know, she would take me to the library and she would say, you can check out as many books as you want. That was, my mother was great about that. And I also had this fixation with journals and pens. And so I was, I had this, you know, massive collection of journals and pens by the, you know, by the time before I was like 10 years old. And so I've been writing for a long, long time. And it's really, it's really the reason I'm on this earth. It's, it's the purpose that I have been given um, for my existence. And it really wasn't until poetry, because I've written prose, I've written screenplays. Um, it wasn't until poetry that I kind of felt something click inside of me, that it's that this is the place where I can release all of these like really complicated emotions and these complicated truths that um, nobody is good. Nobody is bad. We are, we all exist on a spectrum and we have our good points and our bad points. And, and you can really explore those complex, like those complex truths in poetry. And you do it by, you know, tricking the audience with the vivid imagery that it's like, this might make you uncomfortable. This might hurt a little, but you will be the better for it. You'll be the better for reading it. That's at least my goal always. And you're definitely achieving it because I can tell from the from the work that I read that we were able to publish that not only do you mean what you say, but you're obviously looking into yourself as well. You're not looking at the TV to, to grab a couple of images. You're not trying to scoop a couple of cliches out of, out of you know, a, a magazine. It, it, it's something that's coming directly from you, which is what I believe It's what I preach all the time is what's necessary and why I tell people all the time. Because I, I, I get a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it hate email, but I get a lot of dislike <laughs> email from people that say, Mark, why do you want the dark? And I'm like, I don't know anything about no dark. What I, what I want is something real from you. You can't tell me that you're 68 years old and you're still writing about rabbits in the forest and I'm supposed to be interested in this. You can't tell me there's nothing in your life in 68 years that you can't talk about in this writing that's going to connect to somebody that you wouldn't mind getting out there if you're that much of a ball of just nothing but rabbits. I mean, you got to be serious about that. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude to anybody. But this is what I respond with. I, I said it's not about darkness. It's about letting something out of who you are. Don't tell me that you, you don't. I'm reading this thing saying you've been married three times. You don't tell me you don't have any disappointments from that. You don't have anything useful yeah. that you can teach us, maybe about how to be a better spouse or, or maybe about what to avoid or maybe about the things that, that really aggravate you, something that just pushes people in whatever direction you might want them to, something that says – I am here now and I'm done with this and I want to do go and do this now. I'm going to go travel the world. And one woman told me that. She said, I'm done with these guys. I'm going to go travel the world. I'm going to use my money and have fun. And that's what she did. And the writing that came out of that was more interesting than anything she wrote while she was married. <laughs> that's what she told me. Of course. But And, of I, course. Be and I believe her. But that's the, the side of things I'm talking about. I'm, I'm trying to tell folks that it's not about getting some confession out of you. It's not about some dark wanderings I, I must listen to your secrets all day no i'm a human too i don't want to listen to all these secrets okay but what i what i am saying is is that art has to be informed by some of these things that we know to be true and sometimes some of the things that we put aside or we deny or we don't want to actually deal with because once we do we raise that level of art to something that connects to people and when they connect they remember who you are. Sometimes they even remember things about themselves that they would like putting away. You actually start helping people. It almost becomes therapeutic without even meaning to do so. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I could say a lot about women in marriage. Um, I'm not surprised her, her writing got better when, you know, when she wasn't married anymore, because in a way, when you're in a marriage, you know, it's like your life is it's not about an individual anymore. You know, you're a unit, you're together. And especially if she had if she had marriages and and they didn't work out, then obviously they weren't healthy situations. And and so now that she's free and traveling and living her most authentic life, then, of course, of course, the writing got better because, you know, when when we are trapped, we're writing will feel the same way as writers. You know, our state of mind is so connected to our work. It's I mean, you can't separate one from the other. And so whatever you are experiencing, it will be channeled into your work in some way, somehow. And so that will exemplify itself. It will show itself. When I wasn't being honest with myself, my writing felt that way. I, you know, when I was younger, I would seek validation because I was insecure. And so that was how my writing felt. And you know, once you're, once you realize why you do it and you do it because you love it and, you know, I'm going to be writing until the day I die. I just will. I'll probably die with a pen in my hand. And, um, once I realized that it changed things, it, it, it really did. It's like there, there are shifts within ourselves that when we relinquish all of that crap, all of that stuff inside of us that makes us doubt ourselves, makes us doubt this path, makes us double you know like makes us second guess our writing and and what word we use and what we're writing and should we write this so this person is happy or so so for this audience and no no you 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 can't do that because you're cutting yourself off at the feet it's like why what's the point then you might as well not write you might as well do something else do something do something more lucrative you know (laughs) and go go into marketing you know there's a lot of jobs in marketing and there's a lot of groupthink. So, you know, you can you can just hide it there. But with writing, you have to be honest. Like you it's you almost have to write the story. I had this amazing um screenwriting mentor. Um and he he you know, he passed away a few years ago, but he said, uh, you need to every time you sit down to write, you need to be writing the story that um if you were dying in a ditch, this would be the last story that you would tell. So is it something that comes from your soul? Is it something that comes from your heart? Is it telling some truth that you know to be true in your own existence? And you hope that it resonates with somebody, you know, and, and, and that's it. That's all you can do. And the beauty of writing as well is that you finish a piece, you move on, you keep doing it. You just do the work. And I always feel better after I write. I know a lot of writers, I've known a lot of writers that they say, well, I don't really like the process of writing. I just do it. And and um, I got to tell you, I still love the process. I've been writing since I was a kid and, and I'm in my I'm in my um, mid 30s now. And, you know, I still I love it. I and, you know, it's it's just the truth that I know. Uh, those that have been called to writing sound just like you. So I know it because <laughs> I don't get to meet that many of them. It's another reason when I saw your writing, I knew right away who exactly you were. And then when long we talked, I'm like, yeah. That's exactly who this person is. And, and, and I'm not surprised. I'm happy because you don't get to meet too many people like that because too many folks, even if they are dedicated to writing, and even though they might want to make writing the central part of their lives, 
if they can't be honest with themselves, it's just not, not going to work. I, uh, somebody asked me the other day, Mark, what, what do you what do you think that um, um, you'll know that the writing is good? I go, well, um, when you're done with it and you're really uncomfortable, there's a good chance that you had something good there. And if you do a little rewriting <laughs> to it, you'll be shocked at how, how great it is. And it might even make you even more upset. That's how you know what's good because <laughs> – it's you know I don't I never heard a person yet and maybe maybe call me prejudiced or weird or something but I haven't heard anyone yet that wrote a poem about a blue rabbit and felt weird afterwards they always seem to be happy about it <laughs> I looked on Google I can't even find a blue rabbit so what are you talking about <laughs> only if that blue rabbit was leading you down a path towards the truth of your own existence and it's like a spirit guide. That would be interesting, no, you know, that, if, you, if it leads you to another portal or something. Would be, but, it would be yeah. nice, but it just went into the forest. It was, <laughs> there was some wind, and the moon went by, and that was it. That was the poem. So I'm like, oh no, yeah, exactly. I'm I'm not feeling anything here because this doesn't make any sense. It's, I mean, if writing to people who are writing is is a form of escapism, then they're never going to do well because it's supposed to be conveying something useful, something that I, I feel, if not deep, at least true to a, a certain extent. Maybe somebody who's reading it can be a form of escapism, but when you're putting it together, you, you're supposed to be able to construct something that, that makes sense, that's that's taking a bit of a risk, and, and that's the problem with, with too many people who, who either are writing right now or want to be writers. They seem to be risk-adverse. That's why I say maybe they go to the post office or, like you say, Go to marketing or, I don't know, go take up dancing or something. Um, maybe that's risky to your ankles, but hey. <laughs> Writing is yeah, risk. I mean, it's risk. And if you don't want to risk, you, you're not going to write. It is. It is, a, it is a risk. You have to take a risk. You have to take a risk. And the, 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 the problem with writing, it's very um, – the world of man, you know, the, the entertainment industry, publishing industry, they kind of, uh, you know, there's like a standardized method of submitting work. There's a standardized method of like, well, this is the genre and then this is how you query. And then these are the comparables. And then you have to, you have to package it in a way like there's such a, there's such a reliance on established intellectual property nowadays that unless something harkens back to something else, unless in, in a way it's derivative of something else, then, you know, people don't want to take the risk on it. Like the people who are the door openers, the people who are the, the ones who hit the green light of like, yes, we can turn this into a book, into a movie, et cetera. You know, there isn't that risk. Um, and it's, and it's a shame because then a lot of writers, I know so many writers, I know, I know so many talented writers, so many talented writers that they're brilliant, but the industry, the industries haven't been kind to them. And as a result, sadly, they kind of take it out on their own writing. And I'm of your same mindset that uh, you have to take a risk. You have to tell the story, even though it's different, even though maybe, you know, you have to kind of stretch to find a comparable in order to in order to sell it or what have you. It's you have to take that risk. You have to tell the story that you're dying in a ditch. And this is the last story that you have to tell. You have to do it. You have to stretch yourself because there you're really going to find something interesting. You're going to find that discomfort, you know, and then discomfort is, is knowing that you're, you're doing something right. And if you're a little scared, then you're doing something right because you're taking risk. If something's safe, it's not interesting. You know, sure. You can watch it or sure. You can read it. Like I finished a book recently 
that I, I read it. I read it in a couple of days. I was sick actually. So I was kind of, um, you know, in the days of COVID, if you're sick, I, I, I was waiting for the results of a COVID test to make sure that it wasn't COVID because I lived, um, I lived with my family. And so I was in my room just isolating myself and, and I read a book and I read it in two days, but I got to tell you, I, I have not thought about it since today. You know, it just, it, it's not something that I processed over and over again. And I was like, wow, how did they do that structurally or, or it, with the imagery or with the character arc and the characterizations or the plot, how did they all meld that together? No, I have never thought about it after that. And it's because, you know, it's meh. All right. It, it's there. It happened, which is, it, it's a huge accomplishment to write a book. So congratulations to that writer, but um, it didn't move me. It wasn't, there was something missing. I don't know. Maybe it was the soul, but um, I don't know. You know it when you see it. You know it when you when you feel it. But that there's something that that there's that metaphysical, that piece of alchemy in that work that that moves you because it told you something true about existence. I I couldn't agree more. It's what we preach on a regular basis. I did an episode here. I think it's called "The Making of a Writer in the 21st Century." Now that I get some of the worst email I ever gotten in my entire life. <laughs> I had people saying they're never going to write again and uh, hate my guts and this and that. But I, I pretty much told them the truth about what you're just mentioning. I just did it in a real succinct way. I mentioned, listen, uh, you attract the agent. Uh, you got to give them five pages of your marketing plan before they even begin to read your book. They're more impressed with your marketing plan than your book. And then if you don't convince them with the book, it's similar to the other six or seven books they're asking you about. Why are they going to invest their money in you? This is all a business decision. It's not very artistic. It, it, it barely is literary. But this is what's necessary if you want to go with some of these big publishing houses. And then you have to go with whatever they're doing next. I, I had a friend I mentioned on the show a couple of times, and I'll even mention it on this one. He had an outline for a three-book spy novel series. The first one was done. Okay, So he got a, a publisher to give him a quarter of a million dollars up front oh, wow. for the three-book series. He, he didn't read the contract, which mentions to him that now he has to travel on his own dime on the money they gave him on all the hotels and all the places they want him to be to go promote that book. Radio, TV, conventions, this and that, and whatever. Between the first year of him doing that and all the money he spent and almost destroying his own marriage, he still had to write the other two books. When it was all oh. when it was all over with four years later, he barely had a ma marriage. He didn't even know what his kid looked like anymore. He probably made about $75,000 in, in four years. That's even with the worldies that came from the books because he had to spend so much of it doing all the things the contract said. Otherwise, that would be it for him. He could get sued. He would just be blacklisted. In the end, he decided to finish that, never go back to it, and did other books with, with more, more of a midless place that didn't live, require all of that much. And he was able to rip off his name a little bit on that. But the experience for him was absolutely horrifying on, on all types of different levels. <laughs> oh, wow. So he just worked directly with the publisher, or was this with through his agent? No, he, he, the agent he, got, he got the agent, and the agent got him this deal, and... I guess when you see a quarter million dollars arriving at your house, you're 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 pretty damn excited. Uh, yeah, not, yeah. Not realizing that your life has to alter in ways that you never thought about. You can't have a, a full-time job anymore. You got to be flying and doing all kinds of things that these people want you to do. They're not paying for any of it. You got to pay for all of it. 
I think he said the only thing they paid for was his convention fees. Other than that, he had to pay for everything. You know, you say oh, you say wow. you say in a big city just for one event, uh, between eating in a hotel, you, you could be spending five six hundred dollars right there just for that day. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He was, wow. He was telling geez. me he was paying like sixty seventy thousand a year just <laughs> just on the travel in the hotels and stuff. Oh, they made they made yeah. they made two million dollars of his books by giving them a quarter million dollars. He spent most of the money on the marketing that they had set up. This is Oof. this is the kind of stuff that that gets done. Nothing in that arrangement is illegal, believe it or not. Nothing in that arrangement is unethical. But if you don't have a lawyer looking at things, if you're not looking at it carefully, if you're getting all excited about what they're gonna do, I, I had a I had a young lady. She wanted to go into the. Uh, teleplay business writing for a tv show it, it never it never occurred to her that after they accepted a couple of her spec scripts and gave her like ten thousand dollars for each one that not only did she have to become a union member she had to move there in order to be able to be with everybody in that room to do this show again yes a, per, yeah. a person with a kid a person with a husband saying what the hell am i going to do over here in iowa when you're over in la and after a year of that it didn't matter how much money he made, and she told me she made like over two hundred thousand dollars just just for like six months' work. She goes, I, I can't I can't live this way. I, I my family over here. I got to go fly out every other weekend or something to go see them. She said sometimes they're in a room for like sixteen hours a day. I mean, people just don't realize how a lot of this stuff isn't all that glamorous. It's it's a great deal of work, and sure they give you a great deal of money, but. They're giving you this money because they understand that they're literally using your life away as, as you're writing for this show, which is no guarantee that it's even going to get picked up for another year. Yeah, I mean, TV writing is very labor intensive. Um, it's you have to be in L.A., you know, except for the rare occasion you have to be, you have to be in Los Angeles and you are you're working long hours. I mean. A lot of people, you know, they, they presume I worked in the entertainment industry for a long time and, and people presume, oh, that must have been cushy and that must have been glamorous. No, there was nothing. There was nothing glamorous. It was fun and exciting and, and every day is different, which is I very much like that. Um, as a person, I don't, I don't like to get into a rut. Um, I like to just see new and exciting things all the time. It's sort of it spurs on the writing, of course. Um, but it's very difficult. Like if you were, if you had family in another state, um, it, it would be very difficult to do that kind of work just because you have to be in LA, you have to be in the, in the room, you have to be in the writer's room and, um, oh. having any other like obligations elsewhere, it, it would be like, you know, vivisecting your heart, basically cutting it in yeah, two. She, they were giving her $25,000 for every episode, right? Mm-hmm. So between that money and the fact that she has to maintain two households now, got to live in L.A. with an apartment over there, and then on top of that, you know, spend all that on food on everything else, paying a, a, a union due fees, all the money she sends back home. She goes, even after a year of, of doing that, it, it, you know, it, it hurts your family. You, you don't have as much money as you think you have, especially since you have to pay taxes on that. That doesn't come out of the what they send you because you're an independent contractor. They're sending you the money they say they're going to send you. You got to do the rest of it on your own. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. like, she's like, I'm not rich, and and I didn't really find the experience uh, fun. She goes, maybe I'll just do some spec scripts now and then for a show and, and phone it in. But she goes, that's about all I'm willing to do. I can't do anything more than that. This is for somebody else in terms of the lifestyle. Folks don't realize that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same with writing books. It, you know, writing a book is it writing, writing a novel is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Just one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's because it's, you're working across my, my novel ended up being about 400 pages. Um, well, I've written, I've written three novels. The first one is unreadable. It's just terrible. And this, the second that one happens. is, um, yeah, you know, that, that's just how it is. The second one was more, you know, just like meandering. Um, actually, the premise is going to become a, a book of poetry. And then the third novel is the one where it's like really a set story and it's no, in no way is it like impressionistic or anything. It was, it's just me. I having worked over, you know, 400 pages basically. So, and it started during the quarantine and I'm still working on it. You know, it's, it's just some novels take years, years of work and you have to be dedicated and you have to believe in the story every step of the way, because if you don't, it's just like the, the book, the, the words will smell fear. They know when you don't believe in them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then they won't, they won't come out. And um, so man, novel writing, it's just, yeah. Hearing, hearing the story about, about your, your friend who experienced all of that. That's, that's heartbreaking, especially after all the work that goes into a novel. My gosh. Yeah, it's it's it, it's a pretty rough uh, experience for a number of people I, I talk to. I try to share those things on the show with people so they they have an understanding that there's a lot of wonderful experiences out there, but to get to those experiences could take years, and also it could take years of things that have nothing to do with writing, like marketing, like networking, like making some various connections by constantly talking with agents and other people. And constantly trying to renew what you're doing and have other projects, you know, in 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 the till ready to go. All of those things are are, are are necessary, and sometimes you have to do them simultaneously. So, yeah, good things can happen with people, but you have to be prepared and you have to be patient. And and it's not just about talent. That that's actually a small facet of it. There's so many other things that are business related that a lot of writers don't seem to be taking that seriously and one of the worst things i find about writers these days is and there's no other way to put this uh, they lazy they they just think it's gonna magically be found in a pile someplace or the agent's gonna take them to lunch and say you're a genius or um somehow um a check's gonna arrive in the mail i don't know it's okay to to write fantasy but it's not okay to believe it that you know like you you really hit the nail on the head as a writer you have to have so many especially nowadays you have to have so many different skills like um like you have to know about marketing you have to know what goes into building your writer's platform you know the social media pages and and how you work with design and logos and cover photos and where you place those it's just there's so so much goes into it you have to know about marketing. You have to know about business. You have to be up on what's happening in the publication industry. You have to know how to pitch. You have to know how to sell yourself, know how to write a query letter, know how to be professional. Um, so much goes into professionalism, like responding in a timely manner to people who have inquiries and and knowing how to respond, knowing how to submit your work for publication. There's so much that goes into it uh, nowadays, especially because it's you know, you uh, we live not only in the waking world, but we live on the internet. We live on social media, and so you have to have a presence there as well. It's necessary. I agree with you. It's some of it is talent, sure, but you can be the most talented person. But if you don't have persistence, if you don't have that business acumen, if you don't 
take the time to educate yourself on marketing and how to market yourself, then, uh, you know, the cavalry isn't coming. That's one of my favorite. Um, <laughs> it's that, well, that's one of my favorite speeches from uh, this, a filmmaker, Mark Duplass, that he talks about it, how he got started as a filmmaker. And he, his speech is like the whole motto of it is like the cavalry isn't coming. There isn't somebody coming to save the day and coming to whisk you out of oblivion and say, Hey, your writing is amazing. Let's let me give you a check so you can be a working writer. That's not happening. You need to be your own cavalry. You need to be ready. That's it precisely. Like if you're selling something and you're in the process of querying, have something else ready. Have something in the chamber ready to fire off and and always be working on something at some point be at that point in the process where you're at the conception phase where you're thinking of an idea um or, hey, I'm outlining at this point, or I'm in the middle of a first draft. It's terrible and it's amazing. You know, like it's first drafts are amazing, wonderful, horrible, terrible, you know, back to wonderful experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm just shocked on how people are not prepared and they don't really take some of this stuff seriously. I had somebody that told me, and, and, and they were sincere, but they were like, Mark, I just don't really believe your emphasis on marketing is that important. I, and the person had completed the book and, and, and I kind of like glanced through the book. They sent it to me uh, as a PDF just to check it out. And I'm like, okay. I said, listen, I, I know this agent and this is the kind of agent that what they do is because, you know, they're, they're quite kind of callous about stuff is that they'll say, yeah, 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 sure. Um, I'm going to send you uh, some information through the email, check it out and then get back to me. And I said, what this person is going to send you by PDF is a five page marketing plan. Okay, I said, so why don't you do me a favor, go make contact with that person, read this marketing plan, and you'll understand how it works for just about all of the agents out there. Unless you're an established literary figure or a celebrity, they want a marketing plan for you, and you won't even get a chance to talk about your book because you got to actually fill this plan out. And this plan is all about, do you have an author website? Do you have 50,000 people maybe on social media? Are you in more than one social media platform? Do you got some networking and organizations and professional places? You think you could sell your, your, your book in church? Uh, how about selling it through the bar system? Things like this. This is all stuff you have to put in there. What is it related to? Other books that sold well, blah, blah, blah. You know, they got that thing and they, they couldn't believe it. They go, I, I can't believe this. I'm like, well, you could try other agents and, you know, see if they're willing to even talk to you because some will literally say, I don't want you to fill out my marketing plan. I want you to send me yours. Then you're really going to have a problem because if you got nothing to send them. Don't even talk to them again because they're not stupid. <laughs> they know who you are now. <laughs> it's like it's like that. It's like that monster. You revealed yourself. Now they're coming for you. <laughs> and agents have like zero time. They have negative time. Yeah. You know they're they're constantly reading, constantly working. They don't have the time to coach writers. You know we need to be educated. We need to be educated in the industry. And you have to be kind of like a quadruple threat. You have to have a lot to bring to the table. I mean, because beautiful writing is wonderful, um, but it has to come with some kind of intelligence and knowledge of the market that you're about to enter. You have to know what's going on. I, I tell people succinctly just so they understand, because I don't want to like damper anybody's spirits or hopes, but at the same point, I'm not interested in selling a whole lot of false uh, salvation either. If you can't give them an idea about 
what you think this book is going to go and how well you believe it could, it's going to do, why are they going to invest? I mean, an agent told me, she said, in the least, I don't care if you don't like the corporation or not, they're spending $50,000 in the very least on you just for the people that have to get involved in your book. And they don't do much of marketing mm -hmm. themselves. You have to do a lot of that. So I go, why is any company that has to justify its bottom line to either its investors or the parent company or whatever going to just hand over $50,000? Because that's really what it is to do this book without having some idea about what it might be able to do out there in the marketplace. It's common business principles. It's not like that sophisticated to understand. I mean, we expect all of this. If you're just Joe Blow and you want to open a bakery up, you expect that you know who's going to buy these products and how they should be priced and everything. That's okay to know that, but when it comes to a book, you're not supposed to you know, have any of this knowledge at all. You're supposed to hand it over to them. They're going to just magically make you rich and everybody's going to read your book. I'm not really sure what they're getting impressions from, but I think it's around like 1950 because it's 2021 right now, you know, and I told this one lady, I said, listen, your politics can be from 1950. God bless you. But your book strategy has to be from from this century, okay? It has to, it has to involve the Internet too, okay? <laughs> well, I mean, and that's and that's the thing, too, is that when you work with an agent, you work with a publishing house, they are investing in you. You are an investment. And you almost you have to approach that with a modicum of responsibility and for what you are bringing to the yeah. because you have to bring some kind of intelligence there besides, you know, the creative intelligence that went into that novel. It has to you have to believe in it. You have to say, I see this fitting into the market in these ways and according to these books and these projections and how they did. And, you know, that there is a responsibility in accepting an investment from these traditional publication methods. I mean, you have to accept the gravity of that and, you know, have that humility as well. Having knowledge and doing your research is an exercise in humility and saying, okay, I need to be prepared. And it's not like I'm Miss Fabulous coming with fabulous book and fabulous writing. That's, you know, I mean, that's part of it. But the other part of it is you have to have the humility and the responsibility to say, okay, how can I be prepared? And how can I make it so that they don't feel that their investment was a waste? Because that's like a nightmare, you know, feeling like, wow, all this money was invested in me and my career. And I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared. That's like that nightmare of like, you know, being at set in high school and you're not wearing any pants. You know, it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's completely true. And it's just, it's just unfortunate that you, you have folks that, that, that simply think that way. And I, I, I never try to dampen them. I always just tell them the truth about it. I said, you're going to have to. Look at this more carefully because if and because this doesn't exist anymore. I tell people about how publishing truly works. I said, listen, once you're done with the book, and even if the book is consistent and well written and maybe even has a possible audience, you, that's not the end of things. It's really only the beginning. I know it sounds horrible and horrifying. Some people are like, oh, my God, are you serious? I thought I was just going to the next book. I'm like, uh, there, no, it's no next book. You need to worry about this book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely you need to focus on making this book as, as successful as you can you know with putting in the work putting in the research and then you move on to the next one and the next one and the next one because as writers we're we're always writing <laughs> we're always devising the next book I mean maybe I or I just walk around with like three or four ideas kind of 
bumping around in my head. Like they're stumbling into each other <laughs> while I'm living my daily life. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, and I don't really know exactly what creative writing is being uh, taught in, in academia on, on a whole basis. I'm sure some people might be mentioning this, but I don't know if they all are, because it seems to me a lot of writers, especially after they've taken some of these courses, don't seem to understand still that being a writer today, you have to have a lot of hats on, and they just think it's only have to be the one hat. I'm like, what are they teaching these people? Are you telling these folks they knew to know something about the, the Internet and, and the media and networking and marketing and the things that are expected from them and what agents want and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because if they're not telling them all that and just strictly tell them just about creative writing, especially if they want to be authors, I, I don't know what they're really getting all from that. And it, it always worries me because I hear these people and they just sound like either they never went to this writing course or this writing course – it just didn't really prepare them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, on my end, as a writing teacher, I always, I try and be as honest as I possibly can be. I, I try I look at it as like, I'm the harbinger before they go out into the wilderness, you know, like I'm warning you the path ahead is rough, you know, like, but you have to be prepared. You have to be multifaceted. You have to be thinking, of what you can bring to the table besides your writing. And also too, because writing isn't necessarily, it's not a straight line career. It's not like, well, I start as an, as an assistant and then I work up to a manager and then I become VP of it, you know, whatever it is. It's just that it's not like that. It's not a straight line. You need to be doing different jobs in order to, you know, keep the lights on and keep food on the table while you're writing at night or writing in the morning. I'm not, I'm not a morning writer. I'm a night writer. So, um, that's that's always the hustle that I try and convey to the students that, you know, you have to be prepared. You have to be prepared with contingency plans, with plans for continuing education, um, because continuing education is one of the best things a writer can do. And that can include reading books. It can include even YouTube videos nowadays. You know, isn't that great? Like YouTube, you have a wealth of knowledge and some really weird videos at your fingertips, you know, so it's it's like a grab bag, but it's there. And I try and, and convey that lesson. Always keep learning and keep writing because the only failure is if you stop writing. That's the only failure. I think I, myself as a person and as a writer, I got hung up on that idea of failure, of you know feeling like a failure at different parts of my life. And I think that's the biggest fallacy that the society kind of sells us, that failure is this hard and fast thing. And, and if you're not, doing x if you're not doing this if you know then you're a failure when that's not the case as a writer the only failure is if you stop that's that's it your life can look however it needs to look because that's the thing about life is that it's going to shake out how it needs to shake out and you can't control that um but what you can control is is your is your a pen in your hand are your fingers on the keyboard are you still going? Are you still giving life to all those characters in your head, to the story that you can't let go of, to the story that keeps you awake at night? You know, that that is success. And, you know, everything else can fall by the wayside. Just don't stop writing. That's the main lesson that I that I try and impart. Well, I'm definitely glad you're out there in many avenues here on creative writing and writing itself and just being a, a wonderful person out there, having to take some of the, I think you could say the slings and arrows of things because it, it's not an easy life and, and it certainly isn't one 
that has the clear path of like being a lawyer or a doctor or a fireman or something or a firewoman. You know, it, it's not as clear, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have any validity. It just means that, well, it takes an extra dose of strength and maybe even an extra dose of courage. Maybe it even takes an extra drink. But I can tell you one thing. <laughs> you need to have extra with it if you want to continue. It's not a, it's not an easy path. But for those of us that feel that we're called to it, for those of us that I can't see anything else that I've ever done or ever wanted to do that doesn't involve writing, well, that's just the way it is, whether that's a, a burden a, on some days or a blessing in others. And, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes it's a little bit of both. I still I still love it, and I still love writers and, and hearing the things they have to say and, and always, you know, doing whatever I can to promote or, or, or help them whenever that's possible because that's what we should do. Uh, there's not enough that done, I think, in the, in the creative world these days. Thank you very, very much there, Nicole, for coming on the show. I'm hoping that... Uh, when your uh, poetry book is done, uh, maybe we can come over and do another show. Maybe we can talk about that, you know, help promote that. that that'll that be exciting because if it's anything like these six poems that we uh, we published, then uh, I'm expecting a, a truly extraordinary book that's going to take us on a, 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 not only an emotional journey, but maybe even a, a kind of a spiritual one. I always find the best writers, they have a certain spiritual element to them, even if they don't realize it. And I think you're definitely one of those. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking about writing and life. And yes, you nailed it. I'm definitely a spiritual person. <laughs> and that that infuses all of my work. And um, I would love to. I would love to come back and, and, and talk about the book once it's done. And then so it has a new life. And um, you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter as Bird the Writer. Um, I got very lucky. I secured that name <laughs> years ago. Um, and it definitely describes me. So thank you so much for having me. It's been so wonderful. It's really been a blessing to us. I'm hoping that in many ways it'll also be sort of like a learning tool to people that listen as well. And knowing about you, but maybe uh, for you speaking about writing and maybe even about yourself a little bit, that helps other people learn something about themselves. That's one of the, the few, I feel, strong gifts about writing is that sometimes the connection is not just artistic. Sometimes it can be personal or even spiritual. And I definitely think that's the case here. All right, folks, this is Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, uh, Mark Anthony Rossi. Definitely excited to continue with these interview series. Hopefully we'll have more folks down the line. I have a couple of people, actually, that I'm very interested in doing. Uh, one in India, 11.5 uh, hours <laughs> distance. So I don't know what kind of time I'm going to be getting up to do that. But I'm excited to uh, do an interview with this fellow as well. So uh, definitely stay tuned to everything that's going on. Uh, check out Ariel Chart like you're doing. You'll you'll be able to see all her work there, and I'm sure more work in, into the future. This is somebody we'd definitely like to keep following. Thank you very much there, Nicole Bird. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.